Uh, good morning all, great to see you this morning. Thank God for his time in the word now and let's pray. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word this morning as we come and uh, open up the word of God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time that we have gathered around your most precious word. Uh, This word that we know that we cannot live by bread alone. This word that gives us food for our souls, that feeds us, Lord, nourishes us, sustains and strengthens us. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for every single person that has come to gather around your word. It is not me, it is not us, Lord, it is you. And that's who we come to look at today. Uh, We pray, Lord God, that you would um, reveal the things that we have to see, uh, that you would speak to us and our hearts would be opened to listen to what you want to say. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord God, that you have torn this veil from our eyes, that you have uh, allowed us to see so clearly what this world is so blind to. We are indebted to you. We are so grateful to you spiritual work has happened and we pray your blessing on us this morning in Jesus name. Amen. So some of you may recall that last week I just wanted to share with you a little bit about um, Paul's instruction to Corinth, the church in Corinth about uh, this wonderful gospel or the glory of this gospel in the face of Jesus Christ and how, uh, how great it has been that God has come to us in the face of Jesus has revealed himself to us in the face of Jesus and has saved us. And so we read this passage from 2 Corinthians last week and we got sort of halfway through and I'd like to continue that today and, and, to, and to share, just to recap a little bit from last week as well. So if we can open our Bibles again to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to read, we'll just read it again, we'll just read verses 1 to 10 again because I think... I want us to understand, or hopefully that'll help us understand the context as well um, in this this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Paul says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, and as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We stop there and we'll continue from today. Verse 3, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commands light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, you're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. 
hopefully you're encouraged just by the scripture itself. Hopefully the scripture just speaks to your heart as it would at home, as it would um, as you're listening to it in the car, wherever it might be that you're, you're, you're uh, feeding off God's word. God's word has this way of speaking into our lives, even if no one is telling us anything about it. It's the living word of God. And so we are tempted sometimes to say, I've got to go and I've got to get someone to teach me God's word. And that, that's true. That's true. God has given us people in life, people in the church to teach us God's word. That's true. But our trust and our confidence is in knowing that God is speaking to you. God is teaching you. And so when you open up God's word and you listen to God's word, whether again, as I said, in your own times at home, you come believing that God wants to speak to your life. You come with hearts open to speak to the word of God. And when God speaks, you respond. God doesn't speak so it just falls on deaf ears. God speaks so that hearts would respond to him. The hearts would um, uh, uh, surrender to the words that he's actually speaking. And what a funny world we live in when we say things like, oh, this part of the Bible is not for today and this part's for today and that's not for today. That was for the past. That was for then. What a funny world we live in when we start talking in that language. God's never designed for his word to be sort of chopped and changed and and dissected into certain uh, times and dispensations and eras and all that kind of thing. God's word is given to us so that we can actually humbly come before it as the... um, uh, prophet Isaiah said, uh, no, Samuel said, that speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so this morning, as we come before God's word, I pray that you, like Samuel, are able to open up your heart and listen to the word of God more um, intently and intentionally than the voice of the things of this world. I remember one, I read once a story where a person said to uh, someone, his friend, you know, there's only one letter in the alphabet that separates me and you. I love the word, you love the world. And so there's this thing about us being able to um, understand and come before God's word and, and to receive it. And so we come and the, we can listen to the voices of this world. Remember last week? We can listen to the voices of this world and say things like, ah, oh, you know how that you're really good. Remember how the world tells us you're really good. Don't let anyone say that otherwise. And it tries to convince us and puff us up and, 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 and somehow um, give us a false impression of who we really are. Now we know very clearly God looks at us and thinks we're the apple of his eye. In God's eyes, we're a jewel. In God's eyes, it's, we're, we're so precious that he would die for us. But for the world to inflate us in a way that's wrong is only going to cause us harm. Because this is the problem of being inflated by ideas of this world that it only takes one little prick to... And all of a sudden, we're deflated. We actually become flat again because we're not being built up. We're not being grounded in the things that last, the solid word of God. And so we need a realistic picture of ourselves. We look ourselves in the mirror, the word of God, and we see realistically that if there's something in my image that has to change, I don't say to myself, oh, it doesn't matter. I need to look at it carefully and I need to change according to the, the word, its reflection in me. 
And so because of this, we know quite clearly in the scriptures that there is this massive, I said last week, there is this massive gap between who we are or humanity and the word of God. You know, there's this massive gap that needs to be bridged. And thank the Lord that uh, that was brought together through Jesus Christ. And while we're not called good, we are called to be like Christ. And that's the difference. We are called to be like him. And that's what he allows us to become more and more like his son. And we don't go around boasting about our goodness, but we certainly go around determined and knowing confidently that God is bringing us more and more into the image of his son. And so verses one and two, we spoke last week how God has given us this ministry and because of mercy, because of mercy, we don't lose heart. And we know that all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that. And we know that God has brought us back to him because of mercy. This is our mercy. This is the mercy of God that is bringing us back to the Father. And I asked the question last week, are we walking with God because we think he needs us or because we need him? When we understand mercy, we understand that we're not walking with the Lord because somehow he needs us, though he uses us because of his grace and because of his mercy, and that's who we are. We become his hands and his feet. He chooses to do this through his church. We, but we walk and live and breathe ultimately because we need him. But mercy helps us, we saw in verse 2, and I, and I took you through a range of things last week where mercy helps us. But one of the things I shared with you last week is that mercy allows us to not handle the word of God um, deceitfully. It, it prevents us from tampering with the word of God. It prevents us from taking God's word and saying, I like this, but I don't like that. Or it means this when it really means that because we just are trying to comfort ourselves or we've got itching ears that want to please what we want to hear. That's not what mercy does. Mercy says, no, look, you've got to look straight into the word of God, see what it says, uh, be realistic about what it says because my mercy is here to help you get there. Yeah? It's, that's what it's here for. Rather than trying and to twist God's word and making it something else and then relying on our own strength to get there. We don't cover things up. Mercy doesn't cover things up. Uh, we don't tamper with the word of God. We don't need to. And so then we get to verse 3. And then Paul says something almost like a bit of a twist to things, almost a bit of a, almost trying to emphasize a particular thing. And he goes to, and he starts to talk in the next couple of passages or a couple of verses, he starts to talk a little bit about the plan of the enemy. And he reverse, refers to this idea of the gospel being veiled. The gospel being covered up. The gospel sort of having this cloak over it. And he brings this idea because I think what he's uh, perhaps trying to talk about is though this mercy is so great, though this mercy, mercy is so wonderful, not everybody loves this mercy. And perhaps what he's trying to say is that we know there are people in this world who aren't interested in the mercy of God, but we know someone, we know someone who not just is not interested in the mercy of God, but hates the mercy of God, and that is the devil. He hates the mercy of God. Why would he love God's mercy? He's not getting it. And why would he love it? Why would he want people to experience the mercy of God? And sometimes as we get older and we think we've become smarter and we become wiser, we forget that there is a, a literal being called the enemy, the devil, who is roaming around doing what he can to destroy the lives of people, influencing high places and influencing little ones. 
whatever it is. He's in, he's just, he exists, that's his purpose. He wants to steal, he wants to kill, and he wants to destroy. That's his mission. And so, the, the, so Paul exposes a little bit more about his work here. He exposes the work of the devil, and he talks about this veil, if you like, um, being uh, this gospel rather being being veiled. How does the gospel get veiled? How does the good news of Christ get covered up? Well, this, I'm sure there's multiple ways it gets covered up. You you could tell me multiple ways that the word of God is covered up in this world today. Not everybody is interested in God's word, and the devil, for example, I'll give you one example. The devil does a very good job in convincing people that there isn't just one way to God. It's very convincing. In fact, it's not popular anymore to say that Jesus is the only way to the Father. In fact, it's kind of considered to be almost um, a discrimination of some kind to suggest that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And so the devil does a very good job in in making sure that this gospel is veiled uh, to some extent. So that if people want to hear the truth... They've got to go through lots of obstacles to almost get there and seek it really intently and and, and, um, passionately to be able to get there. So he'll do things to also make sure that this gospel is veiled. But there's another little interesting way that the devil does this too, I think. And not only does does he do this to convince people around the world that there isn't just one way to God, but there are many ways to God. But I think the, another way that he might do this is that he, for whatever reason, he's able to somehow uh, work in the lives of believers to either discourage them from sharing the truth of God or somehow um, um, distract them in sharing the things of God because maybe they're caught up in other things. And so here they are carrying around in them, supposedly, the truths of the Lord, but no one is seeing it or no one is hearing it from them. Get that? And I don't know really always why that happens. I'm not sure why it always happens. And I'm sure if you reflect on your own life at the moment, I'm sure there's multiple reasons why, why there is hesitation in your heart sometimes to share God's word. Or maybe there are different reasons why um, you, your life doesn't reflect the Word of God. But whatever it is, and whatever the enemy is trying to do, he ultimately wants to somehow veil the gospel. A little bit like Jonah, and those of you who know the story of Jonah, and I won't go on too long about it, but a little bit like the life of Jonah, who was told by God quite clearly, get up, and I want you to go and share the Word of God. And so he got up, and he ran in the other direction. Now, if you read the story of Jonah, it's fascinating because at the end of the day, God had his way. And still, Jonah struggled with the mercy of God. But whatever it is, the enemy is very clever and wanting um, to try and somehow veil this gospel. And yet Jesus said this, because you have freely received, I want you to freely give. Isn't that beautiful? Because there was no charge to you. I want you to go and give it out freely. And the more you give, the more I'll give you. The more you pour out, the more I'll pour in. And then there's be endless supply of what you need to give out the truth of the message of Jesus Christ that sets people free. The more and more you give, I'll give to you. 
And so he says, you freely have received it. So go and freely give it now. Let it be something that people see is at liberty to be received. Or in Paul's other words, he says, let it be spoken in and out of season. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? In and out of season. Preach the word, Timothy, in and out of season. In other words, preach it when it seems to be convenient or right, or preach it when probably it's not always convenient. Preach it in and out of season. But whatever it is, let it go out and let it be not unveiled, if you like. Let it be told open, let it spoken openly, and let the Word of God do its work in the lives of people. Let's not, let's not uh, confuse that with thinking that somehow um, that we are the ones that are convincing people. We're not doing that. We are the ones sharing God's word with people. We are truthfully giving the word of God uh, with hearts that love them and we're allowing the spirit of God to do the work that he needs to do. So the Bible says this in Matthew 9. But when he saw the multitudes, I'll, just, I'll read it for you. But when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Listen to what he says. Because they were weary and they were scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so Jesus shares with his disciples that I've got a problem. I can see these people are like sheep. They're without a shepherd. I can see these people are hurt and broken and in need, and they need someone to communicate with them. And they're like, um, it's like a harvest, like a a field that needs to be... um, uh, harvested, and yet they're the laborers, they're, they're few. The people who are willing to do this are little, are few. Though the work is great, and the gospel needs to go out to so many people, the message of God, the of Christ, goes out to so many people. He goes, but the laborers are few. So Jesus saw that. And I don't think it was a condition that was just in the time of Christ. I think it's a condition that we have today in the churches. So then Jesus said this, he says, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so we can pray and we can say, Lord, continue to use your people to reach out to those that are lost around them. Continue to reach out to people, uh, use these people to reach out to souls that are lost around them. Because they're the things that last, the souls of men and women. Because he says if it's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. It's not necessarily veiled to those who are saved and confident and walking in faith and going to heaven, but to those who are perishing, who are on their way to destruction. And that's a, big, that's a very serious thing. Now, this way to destruction, or those, those who are perishing, to those who are perishing, um, I, I, don't, I want to clarify something. I don't think this Paul is necessarily saying that these are people who are out there, outside the church, doing life who aren't interested in God. I think when Paul is talking about the, the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, he's talking about anybody, anybody who fails to see clearly the truth of the gospel of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so he could be talking about people who fill the churches on Sunday. He can be talking about people who attend Bible studies five times a week. 
He can be talking to anybody. It doesn't really matter. He's not talking to a class of people. He's just saying people who continue to be blind, regardless of their situation and regardless of their enthusiasm, they may not get it, and you need to share with them the gospel of Christ. You need to share with them the message of hope. You need to share with them the liberating truth of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they perish. They, they are in destruction. They don't understand. And so Jesus put it in a different way. He says, I have a lot of people who come to me who are really good. They come to me close with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so he put it in that way. He, he communicated to people, I'm not, I don't find reassurance with people who say all the right things. Rather, I find comfort knowing that their hearts are close to me because they have experienced and they are living truthfully the word of God. And so this message has got to go out to people. That it's not enough to say I'm a Christian. It's not enough to say I believe in God. It's not enough to say I go to church. It's not enough to say I have a relationship with Jesus. What God is requiring are people who live their faith truthfully. People who are not just hearers of God's word, but doers of the word of God. Why? Verse 4, because the God of this world has blinded, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, lest, and who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. They're blinded, has blinded their minds. It's not a case of necessarily they don't get it. It's just that they're blinded, and so the truth has to liberate them. Those of you that ever played a blindfold game before, someone puts a blindfold on you and you're trying to tell them what to do and where to go, it doesn't really help if you say to them, open your eyes. Well, it doesn't matter if they open their eyes, they're still blinded. Or if you, if you start shouting at them, you know, they're blindfolded and you start shouting and say, come on, it's over there. It doesn't really help them. If you're shouting louder at them or shouting in their face, trying to convince them somehow that the truth of what you're trying to tell them, because they are blinded. But rather, coming to a place to understand that through your faithfulness and your praying for them, that what God is doing and you're sharing with them, God is unveiling their eyes. God is revealing to them the truths of the gospel. And so you're, you're trying to convince them or, or rather shouting at them or telling them to open their eyes isn't necessarily what's going to work for them. Look at chapter 3 for a moment, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14, just go back a little bit. It says this. This is talking about the, um, at that time, the Jewish nation who were um, people believing in God. They were believers, if you like. And in verse 14, the Bible says, but their minds, this is Paul talking about the Old and New Testament, the gospel of old and the gospel of new. He says, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Do you get that? The beauty of God's word is that people can listen to it. Sorry, the, yeah, the beauty of God's word is people can listen to it and still a veil lie on their heart. 
Nevertheless, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And what Paul is communicating here is, you know, you can hear God's word constantly, but still have this veil. But what you have to do is turn to the Lord, entrust him in his word, give give who you are to him, and allow him to take from you, lift from you, this veil that covers your heart. And so sometimes, really, it's not a case of trying to try harder, but rather you come to a place of surrender. You come to a place of trusting him honestly with all your heart. And it's not necessarily trying to do better, but sometimes it could just be a case of coming with repentance in your heart, saying, Lord, I, I, I can't try harder. I've just got to turn from what I'm doing. And allowing the veil to, to be lifted off and the Spirit of God, where, there's, where, where the Spirit of God is, there is liberty, and we begin to experience the power of God's Word. So let's go on. Verse 5, and I love this, because now the focus becomes Christ. For we don't preach ourselves, brothers and sisters, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ, the Lord. And who are we? Well, we're bondservants aren't we? We're bondservants. And I love this passage because he's talking about the mercy of God and he's talking about the plan of the enemy. Um, and then he says this, he says, because we don't preach ourselves. And God forbid that we would ever preach ourselves. And I know you get that. I know you understand that. I know you understand that we don't preach ourselves, but sometimes, just sometimes, we live like we preach ourselves. I'll tell you how. Because when someone doesn't like what you're saying, you take it personally. Or if someone rejects you for Christ, you feel like they're rejecting you, not Christ. But we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus, the Lord. And who are we? Well, we're your bondservants. What we do is we continue to serve knowing that at the end of the day, we're not trying to bring people to my church, we're trying to bring people to Christ. Because this is what ultimately we want to do. Our, our whole, the whole point around the gospel is having, Jesus, having people fall in love with their Savior and knowing the love of their Savior in return. So, Having this great mercy, knowing the plan of the enemy, and knowing that we preach Christ and Christ alone, he then reminds us this wonderful um, uh, balance or tension between who we are and what we have. And in one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, he says in verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Wow. We've got to sit in that for a moment. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. When you feel weak, incapable, vulnerable, you, you remember that's how you were designed to be. And because of this, God places the treasure in earthen vessels. Pottery jars of clay I don't know about you man but that's a that's an amazing choice of words 
If I had truth, and this truth was the only truth in the world, and this truth was the only truth that would save people and set them free, and this truth, there was no other truth, this is the truth that came and will never come again. In other, in other words, there'd be nothing else that could hold anything close to this truth. I would not put this great riches in jars of clay. I'd be pulling out the iron vault, locking it up, making sure no one touches and no one destroys this truth. You guys says, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not putting it in some iron vault. I'm putting it in jars of clay. Because I want to demonstrate something. I want to demonstrate that when you speak and when you share and when you live in your whole, in every vulnerability you have, in every weakness you exist within you, in every inability you think you have, I want to demonstrate something quite powerful that it has nothing to do with the ability that lies within you, but everything to do with the power of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we become these earthen vessels that say, you know what, I want to tell you about Jesus and what he's done for me and the love of Christ and how he sets me free from sin and I was bound to this and now he set me free and I was addicted to this and now he set me free. And all of a sudden that truth that exists within you is communicated to others and people come to faith themselves and you think, oh man, what did I do? Really, not much. I just shared because the power has nothing to do with you. And so he says we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us, because this is mercy. This is mercy. In fact, beloved, I believe that because we are vulnerable, he, he becomes more powerful. And what we are called to do is to trust him. Look at, um, there's a lot of links with chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Oh, well, let's, let's read verse 4. That probably makes sense to read from verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Imagine if people in the church carried this idea around with them. There'd be a lot less fighting there'd be a lot less unhealthy competition there'd be a lot less egos (laughs) there'll be a lot less people um, trying to somehow look better than other people because they want a certain acknowledgement or a certain role but Paul says very simply that not that we are sufficient of ourselves or to think anything as being from ourselves but our sufficiency is from God. I remember a story of a young man, probably, I don't know now, probably 18, 19, um, driving, driving once with a friend and the friend turns around and says to, this, says to this young man, oh, you never know, one day you could be preaching. And this young man laughing in his heart giggling, thinking, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Because what God does, what God does is God works in ways beyond what we ask and think. So this is the power becomes of God. And when that person said to me, one day you'd be preaching, I honestly thought to myself, there's no way in the world. Because I used to tremble getting up in front of people. I used to get so nervous. 
And so it's not about who we are, it's not about what we do, it's not about how good we can become. It's about what God has called us to. And we thank the Lord that the excellence of the power or the treasure may be of God and not of us. I want to remind us of something. Do you remember um, the Old Testament? God called his people out of Egypt. And as they were traveling through the wilderness, they had to, that God knew they were coming to a place where they had to um, uh, fight against the people of the promised land. That was going to be a massive, um, well, there was a massive expectation from them because they were untrained. And I often say to people, they went in Egypt doing gym every day. They were uh, perhaps unorganized as a people as well. They were traveling through this wilderness and God had a plan for them. But it's what he says to them that amazes me because he was going to make them a nation that represented him. And it was what he said was this. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people. Remember that? For you were least of all the peoples. Does this remind you of jars of clay? Because you were least. That's why the Lord, he didn't choose you because you were so great in number and you were, you know, you were so big as a nation and it was going to make him look good and you could spread the word and you could go out there and you could make a difference because you were so big as a nation. He says, that's not why God chose you. In fact, he said you were least of all the peoples. Verse 8, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out, listen carefully, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. It's not because you're big and mighty that somehow you conquered Egypt. It's because I loved you and I brought you out with my mighty hand and out of slavery from the king of Egypt so that the power, the excellence of the power may be of him and not of God. So when the devil whispers and says, it's too big for you, this thing that you're facing is, is too hard for you. This task that God has got before you is beyond you. Well, you remind the devil that the excellence of the power is of God and not of us. That's the treasure that lies within us. And you can speak less of yourself, but never speak less of the treasure that lies within you. And allow God to be working and you demonstrating how powerful he is. Like our, um, I was uh, um, talking to Brother George yesterday and, and as he shared with us yesterday, it wasn't some great big thoroughbred horse that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on, but on a donkey. Um, because it was less of him, if you like, or less of us, if you like, and more of him. The excellence of the power may be of God, having and, and therefore and therefore knowing this, verse eight, we are hard pressed on every side, meaning we're afflicted. But even in our affliction, the Bible says we're not crushed. Look at the element of hope in these passages. Without Christ, perhaps you could say that you are hard pressed on every side, and perhaps you would say you you feel crushed. But in Christ, you are hard-pressed on every side, but yet not crushed. 
And I like this next one because he says, but you are, we, we are perplexed, yet we're not in despair. They, they essentially mean the same word, and I love this. I love the way Paul does this. It's essentially the same word. We, we feel at a loss, but we're not at a loss. Uh, do you feel like that? I, I, I understand him. You, know, you feel at a loss, but you're not at a loss because you, you know who you have. You know the resource you have in Christ. Verse 9, we're persecuted, but that's okay because we're not forsaken. Everyone runs away from us. All our friends abandon us, but we're not forsaken. The Lord always stays with us. He promises to never leave or forsake us. We're struck down or cast down, but even when people try to cast us down, he goes, we're not killed. We're not destroyed. It's never to full destruction. And in the midst of all that, what I see is the mercy of God. And then finally, verse 10. And this is now very clearly why we can do this because of everything we've just read. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Isn't God's word beautiful? Because something very, very significant happens when we come to know the mercy of God and we understand the treasure that lies within us. We're able, like Jesus, to carry about constantly the dying of Jesus. What does that mean? That we carry about always the dying of Jesus. Well, Jesus lived a life where clearly his life wasn't for him. His life was constantly to do the will of the Father. And so in this respect, he didn't live unto himself and his will. He lived unto the will of his Father. He said that quite clearly. You know, my meat's not to do my will, but to do the will of the Father. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so Jesus constantly did this. He was this example of someone who his life was consumed by the will of the Father. He, if you like, daily died for the will of the Father. And then ultimately his great death. And so we carry the same thing. We carry in us the same thing. We carry in us daily the dying of the life of God or Jesus. And so why? So that his life would be manifested in us. So that what people see is him, not me. There you go again. It becomes about him. That the greatest message that people see in me is not what I can do but rather the mercy of God. They see the greatest message to be Jesus. And if people see that in you, and people look at you and say, see clearly the message of Jesus, then boy, you you should be a happy people. (laughs) That's what God is working in us for. And when they see this, and they see this treasure clearly, then the life and the hope that you're bringing them is beyond what we can ask and think. This is great hope. And, as the scripture says, great liberty. We should warm our hearts and inspire us and encourage us to continue to carry around in us the dying of Jesus. So that, as the scripture says, the life of Jesus is manifested in our bodies. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord's blessing.
that it's not about us, but it's about Jesus. It's not about our will, but it's about the will of God working in us. We don't have... um, Our goal in life isn't to become necessarily greater at things, but rather more surrendered and humbled to walk in his will, that people may see Jesus through our lives. The liberty that we have in Christ. This morning, brothers and sisters, don't let the enemy convince us otherwise. Don't let the enemy convince us that somehow we are uh, incapable of manifesting this life of Christ. This treasure that he lies within us is a treasure that has been given and granted to us deliberately in jars of clay, deliberately, so that we can find our trust and our hope in him, that people may see only the power of God. Take your vulnerability and your weaknesses as a way to allow God work in us and through us. As we come before the Lord this morning, as we close in prayer, I ask you and encourage you, brothers and sisters, to not um, run from this great mercy of God, but come in all your vulnerability, come and surrender and trust him and know convincingly that he will use who you are and what you have for his glory if you put your life in his hands. God has chosen us not because we are great in people, as a people, God has chosen us because he loved us. And from this, he will make us like his son. He will liberate, free, and reveal himself to others through this great treasure that lies within us. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your word and your message. We thank you, Lord God, that you have um, called us and because of your power, you transform us, Lord. We thank you for this treasure that you place within us. We thank you for the life that you give us in Christ. We thank you for the mercy that is new every morning. We thank you, Lord God, because of this spirit that lies within us. There is nothing that will bind us, that will keep us trapped. But everything that you do, Father, come, has come to liberate and set us free. Father, may this gospel never be veiled in us. May it be seen openly, may it be given freely, so that others may receive. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this great treasure, but also this great honor to take your word out to this world. We pray in Jesus' name.